to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. It's been a whole year since the world shut down because of the pandemic. I don't need to remind you how badly affected the sponsorship sector was, not least because of events and live sport grinding to a halt. Some adopted a wait-and-see approach, some acted either to cancel or severely reduce sponsorships, or to even head to the table to find a pathway through it all in the true sense of partnership, or with a backdrop of uncertainty, because we still don't know, one year on, when things will return to some semblance of normal. The plights of rights holders and brands is well documented. We have all been affected. However, Often forgotten in the sponsorship conversation is the third side, the agencies, the ones working between rights holders and brands to activate some of the biggest sponsorship deals in the world. There are some amazing minds in the agency world who are not always bound by the hierarchy and the bureaucracy, often found in rights holders and brands. Agencies can start with a blank whiteboard and work on ideas and solutions, some of which eventually find their way into sponsorship deals and that innovation, and the industry is better for it. That's why in this episode, we wanted to check in with one of the world's great agencies, Prism, and find out how they've pushed through their learnings, their successes, and how they are moving forward a year after it all started. As such, joining me today is Shannon Quinn, Managing Director at PRISM. For 25 years, PRISM have engaged their clients' audiences locally and internationally at home and in venue. They've worked across some of the world's biggest sports, major competitions and bespoke experiences and count brands such as Aston Martin, Western Union, KFC, BP, Ford and Holiday Inn as clients. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 94, brought to you by Core Software. Thanks for joining us wherever you are in the world and whatever your role is in the sponsorship industry. It's great to have you with us for this show, and I hope you are doing well. Shout out time, and I have a few this episode. And the first goes out to Ted Hellier, General Manager at GMR Australia, who connected with me on LinkedIn and said he is a fan of the podcast and that it makes for good listening. Thanks, Ted. Great to connect. The second goes out to David Hinojosa, Senior Director, Strategic Partnerships, Brands and Esports at MVP Index in Texas, Houston, who connected on LinkedIn as well and said that the podcast shares a lot of valuable insights and I look forward to it each month. Excellent, David. Glad you enjoy it and it provides lots of value for you. Next up is Michelle Ansel, a commercial and partnerships manager in the UK who also connected on LinkedIn with the message that said, hi, just connecting and wanted to say thank you. I'm relatively new to sponsorship and love listening to your podcast. I always pick up tips or reminders of best practice. And by the way, love was in capitals listeners. So thanks for that, Michelle. Great to hear and thanks for connecting. And finally, Richard Stickelorum. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Richard. Now, Richard's from Sweden and he also connected with me on LinkedIn and he wrote, hi, Daniel, I just love the podcast. You got a steady Swedish handball marketer to listen to you every month. Thanks for everything. Richard, my pleasure, our pleasure, and glad you tune in each month. And I hope Handball is doing well in Sweden. Listeners, if you'd like a shout out yourself, just like Ted, David, Michelle, and Richard, then I'd love to hear from you. So please be sure to connect with me on LinkedIn and say hi. It's now time to welcome Daniel Collier-Hill to the show, Corps Director Commercial and Strategy in Australasia and Asia Pacific, who has written a blog recently on the shift in sponsorship assets. Here's Daniel. Welcome to the show, Daniel. The turn of the new year brought along with it a ton of restructures in the industry, not just to sponsorship teams, but also as both sides look to maybe restructure some of the deals that were in place before the pandemic, a product development, which is the skill of being able to create a new asset or offering, that really did quickly become something that everybody wanted or, or really did need to have in order to help keep their deals afloat and alive and in play and as a result we saw many adopt a more modern approach in how they chose to execute their sponsorship deals and that has been the focus of your blog this month. You're absolutely right um, the Serie R introduced new categories to become associated with VAR and goal line technologies and the NFL and Nickelodeon did a really cool one recently where they introduced slime cartoon graphics into the broadcast coverage Matt Van Drow, and Matt, apologies if I've got your surname incorrect and you're listening to this, but uh, Group CEO of CSM made the point that for many brands, the pandemic offered a much-needed opportunity for reflection on current partnerships and also being able to reevaluate their entire approach. I think 
technology-led solutions and innovation for sponsors are really leading to a new look and feel for deals around the world at the moment. Newly created assets or opportunities are really forcing brands to rethink you know, exactly how they want to activate. Well, and on that point, Gareth Bulk, who is the CEO of Two Circles, he was recently quoted in Sport Business suggesting that the events of 2020 has given all areas of the industry, quote, an opportunity to rewrite the rule book, end quote. What are your thoughts when you hear that? If I can extend Gareth's comments, we're really beginning to see brands review and analyse exactly how they're using a sponsorship deal to achieve objectives and outcomes and not just their why, if I can quote, you know. I think sponsorship as a marketing function has always provided so much value in connecting and engaging with audiences, particularly in sport. But without a connection to fans inside a stadium or at an event, brands and their agencies alike all around the world rapidly turn towards evaluating how they could maintain their levels of engagement to encourage fans to still consider buying or using their product or service. I think despite the many changes and restrictions, the need for that type of engagement never really went away. With a lack of flexibility in moving assets around and no ability to tailor deals to new objectives, that traditional rule book of prepackaged deals just seemingly had to go. You know, we, we couldn't keep using the same assets over and over again. So I think as an industry, we've collectively talked about that slow death of package selling for a long time. But I think we can probably rejoice as it seems to finally have happened. Yes, rejoice, I think, is a great word and it's long overdue. Now, if we turn to page two of the proverbial new rule book, it also talks about brand integration and our ability to try and achieve it and do it seamlessly. Daniel, is that really a new concept, brand integration? No, it's not. And and let's call out for a second. There's no handbook or, or, or rule book that's now been published that everyone needs to go to. What we're really talking about is just how we activate sponsorship rights or assets, but the importance of its execution will no doubt be a factor in the success or failure of, of deals in 2021. I think by virtue of restrictions and how we engage with audiences, the ability for a brand to become part of a person's overall experience, whether on broadcast, digital, in person, will be crucial. Adam Hodge, now Gemba's head of marketing strategy, recently shared a, a perfect example of a sponsorship idea that just gets in the way of a fan passion rather than actually adding to it. And this was at the Australian Open with with the Hawkeye technology. So what I wanted to do was shout sponsor names at the Australian Open instead of out or fault. To me, that was never really going to tick the brand integration box. Yuck. <laughs> Things to consider. Look, if you're going to put more eggs in that brand integration basket, Think about getting ahead of inventory availability challenges, choosing the wrong asset and just not creating consistency with the rest of your marketing outputs. Bringing a, a rights holder or an agency into these decisions or conversations can really help the process as it encourages free-flowing dialogue about what works and, and what might not work as a good use of a, a leverage budget. You know, I think we're all in agreement here, but logos looking out of place, brand names, that appear to just have absolutely no correlation to the event and really ill-timed mentions and commentary just shouldn't happen in 2021. Um, <laughs> that's just that's just not cricket. Maybe a naming rights commentary mention such as the Rolex review or an improved broadcast visual would have worked for that idea at the Australian Open instead. Well, Daniel, now more than ever, we are seeing in the industry lots of questions being asked of rights holders in how they deliver value to sponsors. And it hasn't been a reset of pricing as such, but the the lurking shadow of really needing to justify marketing spend on a deal has brought a more concentrated effort of trying to understand where the value is actually coming from. What do you see the result of that focus being? Well, we've seen plenty of deals literally turned upside down or, or restructured as brands now try and flock to assets that improve their direct-to-consumer capabilities. In a real shift, these assets are those traditionally included as add-ons or undervalued, perhaps thought of as as sort of last minute, and in some cases just totally overlooked as important. I'm talking about, um, as examples, a digital spend, if I can put that in brackets, um, branding of a a fan-facing voting platform or, or just general placement of logos. 
these can actually be really effective assets and not just last minute or add-ons. I think that's probably a, a, a blog or a podcast to come at a later date. If I can steal a, a brilliant line from Nick Biggin, CEO of Green Room Digital, the key will be to properly value content and audiences in the new world. And that's not a, a Lord of the Ring style quote from him there. Uh, you know, he, he's really looking at, you know, branded content, broadcast and, and general brand integration, advertising, you know, general social presence. Uh, that's just going to continue to dramatically soar. But how we value these assets in near real time will probably be this year and next year's biggest challenge. So I think it's more of a, a valuation concept or how do we you know, prove value from these assets as opposed to, yes, let's just flock to them. These might be really good examples of just good strategy in play, but they also represent a, an important new rule when it comes to activating assets or rights. So it's, you know, the, the more direct to a consumer, the better. I think something that to, you know, it is really important to consider is that while all these digital-based sponsorships and assets are going to provide, you know, no doubt immense value this year and, and moving forward, they need to be agile and, and flexible in delivery so that brands can either pull back or double down depending on the performance and results. Just because a contract says it needs to be a Facebook post shouldn't mean that it needs to be a Facebook post. I think it should be able to be tweaked and changed depending on what the brand or rights holder is able to do and what they want to do. Couldn't agree more and I am really looking forward to seeing more and more deals that provide the flexibility for those levers to be pushed and pulled as consumers change, as markets change and as restrictions ease or come into force right throughout the world. Daniel, as always, a great chat and some some amazing things for listeners to think about and then go away and act on. Listeners, if you'd like to read Daniel's latest blog, Activating Assets and Rights in 2021, simply head along as always to the resources section at coresoftware.com. Daniel, Collier Hill, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, mate. It's been a whole year since the world shut down because of the pandemic. I don't need to remind you how badly affected the sponsorship sector was, not least because of events and live sport grinding to a halt. The plights of rights holders and brands is well documented. We have all been affected. However, often forgotten in the sponsorship conversation is the third side, the agencies, the ones working between rights holders and brands to activate some of the biggest sponsorship deals in the world. In this episode, we check in with one of the world's great agencies, Prism, and find out how they've pushed through the pandemic, their learnings, their successes, and how they are moving forward and what they're focusing on a year after it all started. As such, joining me today is Shannon Quinn, Managing Director at Prism. For 25 years, Prism have engaged their clients' audiences locally and internationally at home and in venue, and they've worked across the world's biggest sports, major competitions and bespoke experiences, and they're lucky enough to count brands such as Aston Martin, Western Union, KFC, BP, Ford, and Holiday Inn as clients. And that's why I think you should all be looking forward to hearing from Shannon. Shannon, welcome to the show. We always start with a couple of icebreaker questions, just for a little bit of fun and to get the chat going and for listeners to learn a little bit about you before we get into the serious stuff. Now, my research tells me that you're a Hawthorne Hawks supporter. So straight away, we know that you're going to be a quality guest because I am also a Hawthorne supporter. But for our international listeners, the Hawthorne Hawks are a team in the Australian Rules Football League. As I said, I also support them. Hence, I know Shannon is going to be amazing on the show. So I thought, let's just be totally indulgent here Shannon just you and I and any other Hawks supporters listening let's have an icebreaker question about the Hawks now Shannon I know through my research and social media stalking that you're at the 2008 grand final as was I when the Hawks defeated the Geelong Cats when we were nowhere near favorites it was such an amazing day and I have so many amazing memories from it but for you though what single moment sticks out for you from that day, that grand final day? Well, what a day that was. Yeah, look, it was it was amazing in, in, a, in a number of ways. I wasn't originally um, able to go to the game. As you probably know, the Hawks, I guess, weren't even meant to be there, really. They were, they were the underdogs. They made the game, made the grand final, I should say. And I tried my best and I tried every avenue to get tickets for myself and my brother, who was also a Mad Hawks fan, but um, we, couldn't, we couldn't find any. And then... At the very last minute, I think it was about the Thursday before the game, the then fullback of Hawthorne, Steve Gillum, who um, his girlfriend at the time is a, is a close friend of mine and still is, and um, and he managed to find a couple of spares. But uh, 
as you can imagine with the grand final, they were extremely expensive and um, I had to decline them because I couldn't afford it at the time. And, oh. and my mum stepped up and said, look, you know, you can't miss out on your first uh, first ever Hawks grand final, so I'll pay for the ticket. So good on your mum. She, uh, she forked out the cash. My brother and I went to the game. And as Steve was the one that got us the tickets, we're actually sitting with all of the other Hawks family members and, and non-playing players and so forth. So as you can imagine throughout the game, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of random hugs and high fives to, uh, <laughs> to everyone, everyone in the, in the vicinity. Um, I think at one point I was, uh, you know, hugging Lance Franklin's dad and high fiving Stewie Jews, you know, brother and sister when they were, when he was kicking all those goals, mate. So, um, it was, it was an amazing day and, uh, it was one of, thankfully, many grand finals that I got to go to and see the Hawks win, but that was certainly a highlight of, of, uh, of my Hawthorne journey so far. Best icebreaker answer I've received. I'm sitting here with a massive smile on my face. Now, Shannon, speaking of great Aussie rules moments, I know, as I said, through my social media stalking, that you also played Aussie rules football. What is one of your favourite memories from your playing days? Talk yourself up a bit. Have some fun with this one. Oh, there's a, there's a lot of great memories, both on and off the field, actually. But uh, I guess probably the the biggest highlight for me was was perhaps back in Adelaide, where I'm originally from. Um, my first ever flag, I think it was, I think it was 2004, 2005. I'm showing my age now, but um, I played for the for the mighty Henley Sharks in the uh, in the amateur league down there, and uh, we had um, we had an undefeated uh, undefeated premiership year, which is which is pretty rare, and we actually won the grand final by around 80 points and I remember I remember me being a very smart ass young young guy at the time I think it would have been only in my early 20s I walked up to my opponent at the halftime break and shook his hands and basically said <laughs> you know th- thanks for the game just because it was it was already over at halftime and he uh he could have you know socked me one in the face but he, he laughed and said yeah you know fair enough you guys have got this so but that was uh that was an amazing memory um I then moved to Sydney and actually won three flags up here with the uh UTS bats, which were also equally as memorable, but um, yeah, that's uh, you know I've been pretty lucky. I've played in um, four grand finals, four wins, so similar to the Hawks actually. But at the same time, uh, yeah, made some great memories playing footy. I wish I could still be out there having a kick, but uh, this old body doesn't quite recover like it used to. So I've hung up the boots uh, for uh, for the long term. Great walk down memory lane there, but we better move to the serious stuff now. You've had a 15-plus year career in sport and entertainment, and of course that includes sponsorship. What are the one or two biggest challenges that you've seen over that time? And I'd be really interested to hear about why those changes have occurred during that time, i.e. were they really just responses to changing conditions and were reactive to those markets, or was there a real drive for change or innovation from within the sector? Great question. I mean, there's been a lot of change, I guess, from when I first started in the industry, like you said, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. You know, one of the big, perhaps obvious ones is budgets. You know, I think budgets um, budgets play such a big role in, in the ability for brands and clients to actually engage in sponsorship and, and I guess the ecosystem to sit around it. So it has chopped and changed dramatically, I guess, depending on the industry and the category. So that's one area that I've, I've seen such dramatic change. Um, dramatic change, both, um, you know, positive and negative. I guess one of the bigger areas is, I guess, the sheer amount of, of opportunities and mediums in the industry now versus 10 years ago. So, you know, you think about 10 years ago, there was no KO, there was no stand sport, you know, Facebook was pretty unadvanced, you know, digital and social channels were, you know, were pretty green at the time. So there wasn't the opportunity for brands to engage in, you know, in the broader ecosystem that sit around sport and sit around sponsorship. So, you know, the, the advancements in, in these areas and just tech advancements in general, you know, what we see with VR and AR and, and all the other areas in that space, you know, that's probably the glaring difference, you know, from, from 10 years ago. And I guess, over the past, you know, four or five years, just, you know, the advancements in tech and so forth, you know, and how quickly they're advancing, you know, by the time you actually engage with a certain level of technology, there's a newer, even better one um, before you've even signed off that, uh, that scope of work. So those areas for sure have been a really obvious areas of, of change and innovation. And then it comes down to things like, you know, the, the actual capabilities around you know, what we can do in the media and digital space, you know, the data and measurement um, sectors are, are extremely advanced compared to yesteryear as well. So, you know, back in those days, there were a lot of these, you know, CEO deals done over a handshake and over a beer at the pub. And it was it was a brand slapping exercise for us. Nowadays, there's so much more accountability that, that brands expect and rightfully so with, you know, with the investment that they're putting into sport. 
I was mulling over when to ask my next question and decided to go early with it because I think it will really help frame what type of business Prism is for the listeners and that's going to help with the rest of the conversation that you and I are going to have. Now, Shannon, during COVID, many of us on all sides have looked to do those those fancy management word things, the we've got to diversify and we've got to pivot and all those sorts of things. And one area not really spoken about too much is how agencies have approached it from their own business perspective. Obviously, brokering and managing sponsorship deals is a big chunk of the business, but COVID affected agencies as well, no doubt. Shannon, Prism didn't really rest on their laurels on that front and try and write it out, et cetera, did they? We didn't, no. First and foremost, we had to show a lot of leadership with our clients. I mean, it was it was an unprecedented time where we had nothing to really, I guess, compare to. So no one had been through a pandemic. No one knew what was coming. We had such, I guess, limited notice with um, with the pandemic hitting as well. So we was out pretty quick, both from you know, working with our clients, showing leadership, and also working really, really closely and in synergy with our rights holders and our, and our key you know, sponsorship partners to really... I guess, navigate what the future, both short and long-term, looked like. So that was probably the key when, when COVID hit. And, and, and it doesn't sound glamorous and it doesn't you know, necessarily protect your revenue and so forth. But you know, inevitably, it really did because our clients really lent on us for that guidance and that leadership. And you know, I'm really proud of my team as to how we, how we navigated um, them through that. We also had to lead a lot of discussions and sometimes uncomfortable discussions around things such as, as compensation or you know, identifying you know, areas where your rights holders and or codes had to, you know, give us value in kind based off of, you know, undelivered assets or undelivered entitlements. So, but to be honest, a lot of the rights holders that we work with on a, on a daily and weekly basis were were really awesome in this space. You know, they they were very proactive. They came to us with, you know, with opportunities and with, um, with plans to how our brands or how our sponsorship um, portfolios can actually be, I guess, brought back in line or, or opportunities where, you know, something was underdelivered, how they'll make up for it throughout the course of, of the season and, and throughout the, the rest of the year. So it was a tough time, I won't, I'll be honest, but at the same time, you know, the leadership that we, I think, showed to our clients and also, you know, the relationships that we have with, with our rights holders and our codes and everyone that we deal with really came, you know, came to the forefront because, um, you know, without those relationships and so forth, we probably wouldn't have been able to fast track some of those discussions in the way we did. We also dialed up our, I guess, our strategic and our evaluation capabilities as well. It was one of those times where, with no live sport, you know, everyone thought, you know, sport was, um, you know, what do you, what I get asked the question quite, quite a lot, you know, what did you guys do? There was no sport on, but you know, that's not necessarily all we do. You know, there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes, as as we all know, and as the listeners know, it bringing a sponsorship to life. So, we had to dial up our, our strategic and our evaluation capabilities to, um, you know, to the nth degree during this time, and that. That range from, you know, stripping back a partnership, you know, to its rarest form to basically work with brands as to, okay, what does is, what is the next six to 12 months look like if there's no live sport on or if we can't actually activate in a stadium or if we can't bring to life the assets that are a part of your contract or if there's no fans that we can actually engage with. So, and also the evaluation side of things as well. You know, we, we have quite a lot of proprietary tools and, and systems that we use and some methodologies and some pretty smart people in the team in the broader organisation that, that we brought into to really deep dive into a lot of the um, the existing sponsorships for our clients and work out ways that how, how do we actually, I hate using the word pivot, but how do we pivot them into different areas of of a partnership to really um, gain as much ROI and value in such a, um, you know, such a difficult time that, that COVID presented. So Shannon, you spoke about rights holders being proactive and coming to you to talk about opportunities. And obviously as a business, you want to keep those lines of communication open and keep being able to deliver the work and keep people gamefully employed. What was the attitude from the other side, the brands? Were they a little bit sitting back and waiting or were they really keen to come to the table and, and, and talk about how they could strengthen and maintain their position during what is a really difficult time, putting a lot of pressure on their bottom line? Look, there was certainly some nervousness, but at the same time, they were very proactive in coming to us. You know, we've got some pretty pretty smart clients and some very, you know, smart marketing brains within those um, those client teams. And so a lot of our a lot of our clients would would come to us and basically, you know, whether it be okay, let's let's proactively get you know sit at the table and work out what the plan of attack is, they would come with proactive ideas, they would want to be heavily involved in in what the next phase looked like. So 
it wasn't so much um, them sitting back and waiting for us to come to them by any means. Um, it was very much, a, I guess, a collaborative approach, both with from the client side of things, from our team, and also with the rights holders. And um, and I think that that you know that's the synergy between those three parties really help really help I guess the ecosystem that they play in. But also, most of our clients came out of COVID in a really positive position. So you spoke about how your brand clients were quite proactive in that space and having conversations and all that sort of stuff. And I would think that that's a reflection on sponsorship itself as a marketing function. It has always provided so much value in connecting and engaging with audiences, particularly in sport. It is kind of hard not to keep framing everything we talk about at the moment without the backdrop of the pandemic. And of course, it is impacting us and shifting how we approach our work. Shannon, as such, how do you think a brand's sponsorship spend going forward after we've been through pretty much a year of this now, going forward, how will it compete for budget in comparison to other forms of marketing such as TV and digital and outdoor? Will there be much of a change or will do you think it'll kind of settle back to what it was, do you think? I think it's going to be very client and category specific. We were very lucky that our clients or our, our main clients, I should say, were in categories that you know were certainly impacted by COVID, but not to the level of, of some industries. You know, we we didn't have a Qantas or we didn't have a you know a cruise line in business that were completely ravaged by by COVID. And look, I, I sympathise for for those brands, but at the same time, I feel that some of our brands are our biggest client is KFC. You know, it's no surprise there. You know, they're in the QSR category. That was certainly impacted in some ways. You know, we, you couldn't actually go into a store and and eat your eat your bucket of chicken or your zinger burger, but they um they flourish from you know from a delivery perspective and and, and from drive through and so forth. So, I think it's going to be category specific. I feel that many of our clients are back to to pre COVID spending with um with several having actually quite significantly increase their spend, which is really positive. Some are certainly a little bit more cautious. You know, they want to see how, you know, how the next, you know, period period rolls out, whether there's going to be any more cases, what, you know, it's sort of probably sitting on their hands a little bit, waiting for, um, you know, restrictions to be eased a little more. There's definite shifts, however, in, in how the spend is, I think, going to be cut up across the marketing mix, you know, with brands being a lot more cautious. So they won't necessarily, I feel, put all their money into two or three key areas of the marketing mix, probably more so, you know, spread it a lot more across, you know, the different areas of the business, you know, upweighting digital, upweighting social, still looking at activation, still looking at how they use content and how they use, you know, their pr- production and IP capabilities to actually bring a sponsorship to life. And I also think brands are being you know, more savvy as to how far out they, you know, they plan and how flexible their budgets um, could be. I think a lot of the rights holders that we're dealing with at the moment sadly can't plan too far in advance because they just don't have the foresight of of scheduling and so forth. So we're we're looking at a few a few activations at the moment where we can only plan six weeks out, which is very difficult. It's very difficult for budgeting, very difficult for planning and for logistics, you know, booking booking staff or ordering, you know, any giveaways or so forth. It's, it's really difficult. So I think, you know, I think spend will definitely get back to what it was. It'll it'll be very industry, very category specific, like I said earlier. But at the same time, I'm really confident with how the industry will get back to, you know, pre-COVID levels. Um, and if anything, look, you know, there's a lot of brands that thrive through COVID and, and you know, they're, um, they made... Um, they made the most of a bad situation, so we're hoping that those those uh, those sponsorship budgets uh, can increase and we can help them spend it. It's an interesting comment about increasing budgets on the brand side, but clearly tempered with those comments around caution on how it is going to be spent and how far out they're willing to plan, but also the challenges of rights holders planning and their timeframes as well. So I'm curious about when you look at your client sponsorship deals from this time last year, so let's be clear, pre-pandemic before the world got turned upside down, but then comparing that to this year, what stands out for you the most? Are you seeing a lot of change in the types of of assets being offered by rights holders? Are they being more sort of creative or, or coming to the table with a bit more of an open book or even changing the fees they're being charged or those payment terms? And I'm also interested in whether the tone of those conversations that you are having with brands and rights holders, whether that's changed at all. Is it is it kind of still the same or is it a bit more of a, well, let's just come to the table and see what we can nut out? Rights holders and clubs and a lot of the 
a lot of the partners that we deal with are, are certainly hurting, both financially and from a staffing perspective. You know, we we saw last year there were you know some clubs or some rights holders that had to you know had to put off you know fifty percent of their staff, which is which is pretty crazy and, and quite sad. And and I don't feel that those those levels have come back to you know come back to where they where they were pre COVID. So not only is that difficult for you know for rights holders because you know they're they have um, same amount of same amount of sponsors that they need to service. They have the same amount of revenue targets they need to hit, but they've also got 30% less people sort of attracting that um, that level of service. So I really feel for them at the moment. But at the same time, you know, there is a need for for new assets. There's a need for new inventory to make up for these shortfalls of last year. And I feel what they're doing is creating new assets or adapting new assets with as as little touch as possible. So not as many people need to be, I guess, involved, um, especially based off how how lean some of these organisations are now have to be. So I don't feel the tones changed as such, but we certainly, we're certainly doing a lot more due diligence and, and pre-analysis and evaluation work, et cetera, versus last year as brands, you know, brands need to not only be more, I guess, risk adverse, but but need the sponsorship spend to go even further than than, than before because, you know, who knows if another pandemic's going to hit touch with it? It never does again. But um, we need to, you know, we need to future future proof some of these partnerships. And and by uh, by setting these sort of measurements in place beforehand, I think it sets a partnership up for for long term success. And also, you know, brands need to stand out with you know with renewed category category tension and and also be far more far more accountable. So. One of our clients, who I mentioned earlier, KFC is in the QSR category, a highly competitive category with the likes of McDonald's and Hungry Jacks and, and the like. So all of these other other competitive brands have also done pretty well during COVID. So what we're finding as well is there's a lot of competitive tension. So brands need to, you know, adapt and they need to be more creative and they need to try try new things to really disrupt not only the industry and, and the category, but also also their their competitors really. So unless you um you know, unless you're willing to do that, then you're gonna be left behind. Those challenges for brands that you spoke about and, and trying to future-proof deals, what's your feeling? Do you, do you feel as though rights holders and brands are fairly well in line? There's not much of a gap because I'm curious about how rights holders are talking to brands and, and what they're offering in line with whether that's what brands are looking for, i.e. do you think rights holders, do you think they have their finger on the pulse and they're well aligned at the moment with what those brands who are, you know, they're still coming out of challenging times, what they want? It really depends on, on who you're talking about. I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus. There's certainly been some rights holders that have absolutely done a great job in this past six to 12 months. And there's certainly some that I, I think their leads leaves a, a fair bit to be desired. So, Look, I think it really depends on how that rights holder has been impacted versus some of the other ones as well. You know, some some rights holders have traditionally always done a great job, let's be honest, and some have always probably, you know, always been a little bit behind the eight ball when it comes to their approach, how they actually activate brands or, you know, how they actually how they actually bring sponsors along along the journey. So I feel that um, it's been a, a really great, opportunity for rights holders to really step up and show leadership from their end as well, both from, you know, working with brands, but also working with agencies such as ours and such as our, our colleagues in other, in other agencies and how that, how that can kind of better, you know, the entire industry. Now, as I said earlier, some, uh, some rights holders have done a really great job. They've got their finger on the pulse. They're coming up with new and innovative ways to, to engage brands. They're, they're thinking, not two months in advance, but two years in advance. There, you know, they've got contingencies in play if, in case, you know, in case COVID 2.0 hits. You know, fingers crossed it doesn't. And, you know, it, it's really, it's really impressive to see some of the work that these that these rights holders have done, especially with such lean organisations behind them as well. So, you know, massive tip for for some of them. There's also been some that have, I think, taken the opportunity to be a little bit greedy, which is which is sad to say. You know, they are thinking, well, we're, we've hemorrhaged some money based off of the inability to be able to play games, so we need to make up for that shortfall. So, some of them will take deals that aren't necessarily, you know, for the betterment of the game or there might be some that are a little bit, you know, a little bit controversial versus some of their other brands and some of their other in you know, other categories. So I feel it's it's a bit of both, but at the same time, you know, it's it's also up to us as as a sponsorship consultancy agency to really kind of drive that agenda for our brands as well and make sure we keep the, the rights holders as accountable as possible. 
Well, Shannon, thinking about what you've just said, it'd be great if you could talk us through how your team at Prism approaches changes in deals and perhaps even share with the listeners some tips or some maybe some things for them to look out for when they're going about reviewing their own deals. I guess perhaps the best example in this space is a, is a deal we did smack bang in the middle of COVID last year. So one of our one of our clients, they tasked us to to broker a pretty large scale deal in the cricket space. And we did so in in pretty trying times. You know, ordinarily these deals are done in person, in boardrooms. You know, there's a lot of um, lot of back and forth. You know, there's a few hand slaps at the end and we go out for a lunch and celebrate. Whereas this, you know, this this took a bit longer than usual. There were people dialing from all over the world. Um, there was a lot of a lot of discussion in areas that we ordinarily wouldn't even be talking about. So we added in pages and pages of, of pandemic clauses. There were there were compensation addendums based off of if games didn't go ahead, you know, what was the compensation back to the client? You know, there was a big shift from you know physical to digital activations, you know, and there was a huge emphasis on, I guess, on flexibility on both sides. So if something would happen, we need to be flexible over here, or if we can't spend money in, in X area, we need to be able to shift it to Y. So it was a really um it was a fulfilling experience, if I'm being really honest, because I think it actually we were learning on the fly because this was right in the middle of COVID. We didn't know whether COVID was going to finish, you know, two weeks after this discussion or, or two months or, or two years. So, and what it's done is it's set us up, I think, for you know, for future negotiations and and also for I guess future proofing, you know, sponsorships moving forward because we'll take a lot of learnings that we'll take a lot of the learnings from those discussions and certainly um, bring them to life in yeah in, in future contracts with um with any new brands and any new uh, any new rights holders. Well, on the topic of change, I know Prism do a lot of great work in the evaluation space, whether it's a new client tasking you to evaluate an opportunity that they might have in front of them, or maybe an existing client using you to strip back a live deal and, and, and arm them with lots of great data and insights to get the best compensation for any maybe undelivered assets or entitlements that they still have left in their contract. What's your plan of attack when a brand says, evaluate this for us where do you start and ultimately what are the key areas that you focus on in that process yeah this kept us very busy last year and <laughs> and it continues it continues to do so for, for obvious reasons god there's a lot of different examples that i could tell you I'll, I'll maybe just highlight a couple but generally in this space what we'll do is you know we identify this area and look it's not new there's a lot of other agencies that have you know have evaluation tools and have their own methodologies and so forth we do as well and you know, we've got our local our local um, proprietary tools that we use we also have a global tool that we use called the connected sponsorship tool um, out of our uk office which is great by the way first and foremost what we would generally do is strip it right back to the original strategy okay what what is this sponsorship designed to deliver and you know what is the business i guess problem that it's it's been used to deliver as well so that's that's sort of generally how we first start and what we'll then do is is we'll basically strip it right back and, and be like, <clears throat> okay, let's put this through, you know, one of our numerous tools and, and use our own you know, methodology as to how we can actually either assist that individual sponsorship to get back into, you know, positive territory. Or if not, we've got the tools and we've got the um, the ability to be able to, you know, use that information to go back to a rights holder and say, hey, this isn't working for X reasons. This is how we feel it, it can either be, use more efficiently or it, it leads us into a compensation discussion so that's generally kind of how it might start we've got a, i could talk about this stuff for about four hours because we've got a lot of different <laughs> um different um brains and, and methodologies and, and so forth that we that we play in this space one very simple example is um we've got the victorian government as a client down in melbourne now they came to us a real life example they came to us and said look the AFL Grand Final is being moved from the MCG to Brisbane, as we as we all know. One of their key assets for their for their AFL partnership is the the Melbourne grass signage that sits on smack bang in the middle of the MCG for Grand Final Day. It has a huge amount of value to them for obvious reasons. You know, millions of eyeballs see that game from around Australia and around the globe. And if the game's been moved to Brisbane, clearly Brisbane aren't really going to really aren't going to get any benefit out of a, a Melbourne logo on on the Gabba. So they came to us and said, look, we're having discussions with the AFL. We want an independent, um, you know, look at, at what this is worth. So what we did is we used our tool. Um, we actually, we have an algorithm that actually can watch the game and work out the impressions of that, uh, of that logo throughout the game. And we use a, a fair few different algorithms and, and technology to actually put, you know, some adjustment factors in and actually put a, 
a pretty definitive value on what that is actually worth using you know using rate cards and so forth um, that we can actually that we can use in real time based off the fact that we're a part of you know we're a part of WPP and we have access to that. So we went back to um, to our client and we and we sort of presented our presented our findings and they were able to actually go to the AFL and get probably a 50 to 60% increase in their compensation um, based off of the work we did in that space. So it's a pretty simple example. At the same time, it just sort of goes to show that clients shouldn't just accept the first um, compensation offer that a right side or a code will give them because there can be some pretty pretty tight analysis done to actually arm them with with a far more far more level of information than they, that what they would have themselves and what the actual rights holder would give them. And we were able to do that with, uh, with them quite successfully. There's a million other examples I could give you in that space, but at the same time, that's probably, you know, it, it's one of those ones where we encourage all of our clients to continue to evaluate, whether it be, at, you know, at the start, during, post-season, you know, we, we encourage them to do a lot of surveys and research tips throughout the season because there's no better measurement than actually doing it um, as, as frequently as possible. So it gives brands the ability to be able to, update creative, change where they're actually spending their money within assets or within sort of the digital sphere. And if they don't do that, you know, they're waiting to the end of the season or most of the times probably six to eight weeks after a season before they actually get a lot of their data and analysis from the right side. And by then it's clearly too late for them to be able to do anything. So, you know, the season's gone and then they have to look at, you know, year two or year three of their partnership to be able to put anything in place to, to counterbalance, you know, what um, the issues they had in, 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 that, in that initial season. Well, without putting too fine a point on it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but evaluating a sponsorship of an existing client when there's there's big changes like a pandemic or a market changes or the laws change or anything like that, it's probably going to be over and above what you're contracted to do because it was probably unforeseen that that was going to happen. So it will come at a cost and you are running a business and it takes resources to make that happen for somebody. However, I'm curious about why is evaluating, proper evaluating that is, not just WIP meetings or annual reviews where we kind of just tick things off and yes, we got that and and no, we didn't get that. Why are proper evaluations as a sponsorship evolves and is delivered over a period of time rather than just at the end? What value can those proper evaluations really bring? Well, clients expect much more accountability, I think, than ever before, and, and rightfully so with you know with the level of investment that they're putting into these sponsorships. And that isn't just with rights holders; it's the entire ecosystem of, of a certain code. You know, not only are they not only are they investing significant money with the rights holder, but then they're you know it's it's almost a three to one ratio when it comes to amplifying that partnership as well. So, evaluations play a huge role in justifying that that spend. Basically, you know, there's a lot of ROI that comes with a, with a sponsorship of, of scale. And there's a lot of different ways that um, that brands can get value out of, you know, evaluating a partnership. A lot of the time it comes down to, you know, is that is their investment giving them the return on return that they are looking for, but also is it answering their business objectives and, you know, and, and is it actually ticking the box of why they got into that sponsorship in the first place? So as I alluded to earlier, everyone everyone has their own tools and tech, which is great, but it's also not an exact science. You know, we and we try and use a, a combination of of specific data and insights, you know, the brains of, of, our, of our data science team, our global team best practices and, and, our, and our, you know, connected sponsorship tool and so forth, which, as I said earlier, uses, you know, real-time data and rate cards and so forth. And arm our clients with a, a very compelling and detailed, I guess, value of, of what an existing sponsorship is worth and, and or, or can we look at, I guess, a proactive opportunity and using, I guess, the same process to save their money or tweak the opportunity to, to better suit their business. So it's not just about existing partnerships. We'll often get a client come to us and say, hey, we've just been approached by X. You know, they put this, this price tag on it. Do you think it's worth it? And look, we can initially have an opinion on what it's worth, but we can actually put, you know, put that put that opportunity through the same rigor and come back to them and say, look, they've put a million dollar price tag on it. After our analysis, we feel it's actually only worth 700. So, you know, it's 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 a big cost saving exercise for them. They might pay us, I'm not going to, you know, use my rates, but they might pay us 10 grand for an evaluation and we might save them 300. And that's a, it's a pretty simple equation, right? They're, they're saving a lot of money just by, I guess, taking that little bit of extra time to to put it a, a sponsorship through the rigor it deserves, and you know, and, and everybody wins, I guess, except the rights holder who lose three hundred grand. <laughs> but also the the confidence that being able to show and explain that that sponsorship is a good 
investment for the brand. Now, Shannon, we saw everyone flock to digital last year. Of course, it made sense as we worked on the run in a pandemic. As you said earlier, we were kind of learning as we went because it was, hate to use the word as always, but it was unprecedented. So a lot of us were just making it up as as we went and, and trying to do our best. However, now, what role do you see digital playing for brands this year and going forward? Because clearly it was elevated as an asset that a lot of people wanted to use because we couldn't use things in stadium and, and live events and, and things like that. So how do you see digital playing out for brands, not only this year, but as we move forward in terms of how they want to activate those deals? Digital has, has always been hugely important. I mean, what the pandemic's done, I guess, has forced you know brands and rights holders to to adapt, to try new things, to you know to create new assets and 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 look to innovation. So, I don't feel like digital was laying dormant in the space, and then all of a sudden, okay, the pandemic hits, and all of a sudden, you know, investment just you know increases by five hundred percent. It's it's always been a hugely important part of you know of of a sponsorship in the ecosystem of media that sit around it. But I feel that. Clients will definitely look at a lot of digital and social and content inventory more so than for than usual because they're a little bit more risk adverse now as well. You know, if you're looking at the year ahead and you're thinking, okay, if I've got a million dollars to spend, you know, ordinarily I might have spent 500 grand on physical activations at a stadium, whereas we don't know whether that's going to happen. We can't plan more than six weeks out. I don't know if I'm going to order a bunch of bucket heads if I'm KFC, not be able to actually hand them out at, at a cricket game. So maybe we should spend that money, you know, in the digital space and, and, and rightfully so. So we're finding those discussions have been had a lot more until we can actually plan a lot more in advance. I think that's probably going to be the norm. And look, we're doing really well at the moment here in Australia, as, as we know, And but who knows what the, what the next 12 months are, you know, are going to throw at us. But we also need to think, I guess, worst case scenarios and perhaps, the, I guess, the safety medium to counterbalance, you know, or counteract, um, I guess, what we don't know in the next 12 months is this digital space. And, and I feel that some, there's some really interesting things that, that our clients and rights holders have in the space. And, you know, and, and it's... It's been adopted really, uh, really positively by a lot of our clients, and, and we encourage um, encourage spend in this space as well. But we we also don't want them to completely, you know, do a one eighty and, and not sort of spend in some of those traditional areas as well. Because you know we're very hopeful, as as I'm sure all the listeners are, that some um, will get back to full stadiums and full fan engagement um, as quickly as possible, and and uh, the sooner the better. The relative uncertainty of restrictions has placed a lot of unwanted stress for both rights holders and brands and obviously agencies as well when trying to plan out any activations. As the team at Prism plan out how clients are going to approach the months or the year ahead, what are you noticing in how they want to activate? What is their focus in terms of what success looks like for them from their sponsorships? Yeah, it's, look, it's really tough. I, I alluded to briefly earlier. We, we were hugely impacted over summer with two of our biggest clients hardly able to activate massive cricket deals, um, which is which is unheard of. You know, KFC normally normally activate fifty plus games in fifty plus days. You know, there's there's almost a million bucket heads handed out. We literally had no idea whether we could do any or all of that. You know, um, in you know in June July last year. So. Typically, you know, we would order all these bucket heads six months out and have the confidence that, you know, they would be rolled out, you know, across the big batch season, happy days. But we had to make some pretty big calls, you know, in June, July last year, because you have to think that far ahead when you're ordering ordering giveaways or you're actually planning for, you know, for a pretty busy summer. So, yeah, look, it added a, a, a big layer of, of complexity and, and, you know, logistics and additional costs and so forth. But at the same time, I think we, you know, we mitigated that pretty well. You know, it was sad because, you know, you would have seen Big Bash over the summer. We, you know, we had to move games with literally a day's notice. We're in, you know, we're in hubs, we're in bubbles. You know, we weren't able to engage with fans in, in the traditional sense that we had in the past, which was which was sad. But we, we managed to do what we could, you know, with the, um, you know, within the within the limitations that we had to play with as well. And look, Cricket Australia were, were awesome during that period. You know, they had, um, they had a really difficult time for obvious reasons. But at the same time, you know, I think... Um, the ability for us to be able to, I guess, pivot, I hate using that word, but pivot some of that spend and some of that, um, I guess, that entitlement into other areas has been uh, has been really, really beneficial. But at the same time, yeah, it, it was a tough, it was a tough period. But at the same time, we're also, you know, we're kicking off some really, I guess, exciting, you know, activations this year in in the current state of play. So, 
we'll always look at doing physical activations. So we've got a couple of big new new partnerships this year for a few of our clients, and you know the actual physical activation component of those partnerships is still very much you know a key driver for for fan engagement and for for pushing pushing our awareness messages and so forth as well. So we're really excited as to what that could look like, but at the same time. We can also get the same level of, of intrigue and awareness and cut through using, you know, tailored content, which we're, you know, we're playing a, a huge role in and putting a big emphasis on using social, using, you know, club and right side of IP and, and different media mediums to, you know, to do that same job and perhaps, you know, more efficiently. So I think, um, you know, I think the fact that we can't plan more than six to eight weeks out certainly is an issue, but at the same time, it's just forcing us to rethink, you know, how we, how we do business. And I think it'll be for the better because even when we go back to a, a normal a normal season proper, it'll allow us to, I guess, to be a lot more nimble when it comes to, you know, what we do throughout that journey. So Shannon, thinking about when a brand changes their strategy, because we've spoken a lot about changes and learning on the run and, and planning short periods ahead, but when a brand actually changes their overall strategy to marketing maybe, and, and then that flow through to sponsorship, what are some of the things your team at Prism does when approaching a new strategy or framework for a brand in terms of assessing their approach to activating a sponsorship and trying to figure out ways to actually help them achieve what they want to? Really depends on the client. We would really generally strip strip everything back to what their key brand objectives are, what were the goals they set out to achieve, you know, using the sponsorship what the key sponsorship assets were and, and what assets we were going to use to help solve, you know, the, this, you know, this initial business problem. So we look very closely at where a brand is on, on the sponsorship life cycle. And then we would generally tailor a strategy, I guess, to approach this bit. So, you know, it can't just be a, I guess, a set and forget model, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of clients, a lot of brands will happily have that initial, strategic framework they'll set everything up and then they'll kind of sit back and you know and just let it run its course whereas we are very um very active in an ongoing manner to try to make sure that you know clients are always um testing measuring and learning on the fly and whether that be you know using evaluation or tools or technology to do so or you know just continually working with rights holders on you know how assets are performing you know really leveraging i guess their their capabilities to be able to give us that information so if need be we can you know we can change creative we can change you know retail messaging we can you know do anything from you know basic stuff like changing the color of, a, of, of some signage to make sure it, you know, it, uh, it works a lot better at night versus during the day. Very simple things that people don't think of, but at the same time, a lot of brands would tend to, as I said, have a bit of a set and forget model. So it's a little bit more legwork and it's more logistics and so forth, but we're finding we get a lot of, a lot of positive sentiment and a lot of success out of making sure that we are always, um, always on top of that throughout, you know, throughout the sponsorship journey and life cycle. Conceptually, Prism clients are, sponsoring a rights holder so that they can access and engage with that rights holder's audience either because they match the brand's customer profile or perhaps that's a demographic that they want to actually try and access and target i know this is a fairly leading question but i still want to get your take on it because we find that it is still such an undeveloped area at a lot of rights holders so i think it's important to keep coming back to this point with people How important is it that rights holders are able to give brands and Prism accurate data on their own audience or fans? It's super important. Yeah, it's it's very important. Our clients are spending millions to sponsor a sport or a code, and it's primarily based on their audience and, and their fan profile. And and having accurate data on this is vital for them to make those decisions up front as to whether that, you know, that that rights holder, that code or that sport is the best fit for their brand. So it's not only the initial stages, but I guess throughout that, you know, that entire sponsorship journey as well, making sure that, you know, a brand has the ability to, to engage with a specific audience and the audience that they bought into, you know, is continually, I guess, evaluated throughout, you know, throughout the entire sponsorship journey. So, I mean, the data and insights, it enables our clients to, I guess, to efficiently target, you know, a certain segment that they're trying to approach uh, and their customers who are, whether it be a, a QSR category, whether it be a telco, whether it be a fuel supplier, you know, if we have efficient and effective and accurate data given to us for other rights holders, these guys can effectively target, you know, their customers and then minimize this media wastage. It saves everyone money. It's better for everyone if, you know, if that, if that data is accurate, because if you've got a client that has, 
you know, the ability to target the audience that they're bought into and they're doing it effectively, then, you know, everybody wins. Let's say a rights holder gives Prism and one of your brands what is considered accurate data. Specifically, how do you and the brand use that data alongside your own existing data sources that you already have? Because I'm interested in hearing about any situations when working with data that maybe raises some red flags at your end. It's difficult when you have different rights holders partnering with different data source agencies or third-party data agencies such as your Nielsen's or your Futures or your YouGov's. Look, they're all great. We deal with them all. But look, sponsorship, as we've said a few times, I think isn't an exact science, but we, we try and create the right mental models to make to make good decisions when it comes to you know it comes to sponsorship. So, you know, we look at, at various considerations in areas such as you know, mental awareness or mental availability, I should say, creative potential, you know, the compounding potential of a partnership, and also even down to things such as you know the management requirements. So, I guess these models combined with you know the other data sources that I just mentioned earlier, this gives our clients a really great cross section of data and insights rather than just relying on a typical say Nielsen QI score or a futures net value score, which are all very valid, but at times they can also be, you know, somewhat inflated. It's not about quantifying everything down, I guess, to the nth degree. It's about making a better decision than you would have without the process or those models in place, if that makes sense. You recently spoke to Mumbrella about the impact the Super Bowl has as a cultural event. So this is a great question. I can't wait to ask it. How do you see brands approaching these massive one-off events versus more traditional sponsorships moving forward? Because for me, I know I'm involved in the sponsorship space, but it always seems so self-indulgent. Is it a case of spending on whatever will give us scale or, or, or should it really be more scientific than that, do you think? Look, I think there should always be a level of science behind a sponsorship regardless. But that aside, I mean, Australia is, is a much smaller market than the US, right? You know, producing a TVC for the Super Bowl can cost millions. And, and not only producing the actual TVC, but actually placing that TVC in the Super Bowl can cost tens of millions. So what comes with that, though, is, is the eyeballs. And if you're willing to invest that amount of money, then it's a great medium to do so. But putting all your eggs in, in one basket and say, let's let's think locally for a minute. If you're putting all your eggs in one basket, you know, and the equivalent of the Super Bowl in Australia is either, you know, state of origin, the NRL, the AFL grand final, I don't think is necessarily a, a smart investment, in my opinion. I mean, however, these events I feel should be used as as more of a crescendo to a to a campaign or a specific launch, which you know, I feel is is a far better use of use of investment than just putting all your eggs in one basket and, and banging out a you know a thirty second TVC at a at a major event such as you know as the Super Bowl. But then again, you know, it works really well for a lot of American brands. We don't necessarily get to see you know the ads in the Super Bowl as they do over in the states, and te- you tend to get the actual ads you know sent to you, and you can see them via you know trade press two or three days before and anyway so and look they, they they certainly do a job you know it's it's a really great way for brands to engage with with some famous people with talent they, they push the boundaries a lot because they know they're going to get the eyeballs there so it's a really big medium to play in if you've got you know if you've got the uh you know the the spend to be able to do so but at the same time i feel a localized version of that or, or thinking locally there's um i think there's a better strategy that um that australian brands can put into play that will come with better outcomes Shannon, without giving too much away, if it's confidential, that is, what was the best idea or new sponsorship activation that you took out of strategy reviews with Prism clients in the last 12 months or so? Was there anything super interesting or left field that you decided to try to test out, maybe even if it wasn't such a great idea, but there were lots of positive learnings that came from it? One of the best examples, I think, in this space was BP is one of our clients. We've been working with them for a couple of years. The team down in Melbourne tasked us to help create their their entire sponsorship and sports strategy, which we did so about 18 months ago. We negotiated them into into the supercars as the official fuel supplier with 2020 being year one, which was certainly not the best year to, to kick off a sponsorship. And as you can imagine, you know, we we had a, a sort of an 18-month runway into that sponsorship. We have everything organized. We had some great assets, you know, working with supercars and working with, you know, the media owners and everything was um, was looking great. We had the Adelaide race, then all of a sudden COVID hit. So we had one race under our belt um, and then we were like, oh, okay, what do we do now? So the reason I mentioned that is... We, within I think two to three weeks of Adelaide being, um, sorry, with the, the Grand Prix was cancelled, 
we worked with, um, with the supercars team and also with our client clearly. And we were able to get the, the BP supercars, all stars E-series platform live with, with the supercars team. So for those of you who don't know what that is, basically it's a, it's an E-series competition where what we did was we worked with the supercars guys to create a format where the supercars drivers who were unable to actually drive because of COVID could enter themselves or enter their team as a, as an E-series driver. So all of our drivers, all of the, all of the supercars drivers had, you know, their own, um, their own race sim set up with either at home or in their, in their, in their garages and so forth. And they actually raced against each other in a virtual environment. So if you haven't seen it, I'd urge you to look it up because the technology is absolutely next level. You watch it and you think, is this actually a game or is this actually real? So the reason I mentioned that is um, we were able to turn that around in a couple of weeks. And what that did was it allowed our brand or BP as a brand to stay relevant during, you know, during the, the downtime of, of them, there being no racing. It allowed the drivers to still hone their skills against each other, albeit in a, in a sim environment. And it also allowed supercars as a sport to, you know, to stay relevant. So, you know, it was, it was broadcast live every week on, on free to wear and pay TV. Like there was a lot behind it and it actually, it actually generated some great numbers. So it was, it was a little bit left field. It looked, gaming and so forth is not is not new but at the same time I've, the reason i mentioned that is the actual the time between us having those conversations and it going live on air was around two and a half weeks which is pretty phenomenal to get something like that off the ground so massive kudos to the supercars guys for that one and also for you know for our client for um you know taking a bit of a risk and and, and partnering with that and it and it certainly served dividends we actually entered that in a couple of um couple of awards last year that they got nominated for for a few um women but we were the finalists in a few few awards but didn't take home any gong sadly Oh, it was it was great. I loved watching a little bit of it. I'm not a massive Supercars fan, but I kind of got drawn into that a little bit. Now, Shannon, I said to Alice Larkworthy from Arsenal FC in the last episode that I didn't simply want to ask the same old tired crystal ball question about the future. However, these are uncertain times. So people are kind of looking for some guidance and, and, and some direction in the industry particularly from people who are smart like you doing great things in the industry. So instead of just asking what you expect in the future, I'd love to hear about the key areas or or, or themes you and the team are actively focusing on that you've had conversations about and have said, we're going to focus on these things, the things that you're, you're trying to influence in the industry to help drive better sponsorships. A fairly broad question for you, but I think I'm kind of looking for something like, this is what we're focusing on day to day and how we're going to drive forward. We're really focusing, I guess, on three to four themes, taking in a lot of the learnings over the past over the past twelve to eighteen months, you know, both during COVID and I guess pre-COVID. So we're certainly looking at new areas and avenues, I guess, to add to our remit that don't hinge on live sport, if that makes sense. So what we learned during COVID is, you know, we need to have um have some business pillars that actually aren't impacted in case, you know, COVID 2.0 happens again. So we've talked a lot about, you know, strategic capabilities and evaluations and so forth, which is certainly an area of our business that we're looking to um, to expand, but also other areas such as, you know, we're, we're, we've actually got some really cool new technology and, and some, um, some stuff I can't talk about because um, it's not live yet, but some really awesome technology that we are looking at launching in the coming couple of weeks that will give, you know, rights holders and sporting clubs and, and anyone that plays in this space some really amazing data and insights that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to get from any other provider. So really looking forward to, um, to seeing that go live. I guess on the client, so we're really looking at pushing our clients to, to continue to disrupt the industry and, you know, push boundaries post COVID, especially those that, that have flourished. So what we're encouraging clients to do is not just sort of, you know, come back into the fold and do the same old stuff that they've done previously. So really sort of push the boundaries, really sort of create that category tension, which is great for, for them and also great for, you know, great for, you know, the sport that they partner with in the industry as a whole. And probably lastly, well, not lastly, but probably um, third in my list of, of things we want to focus on is, is really, I really want to arm my team. This is from a personal perspective. I really want to arm my team to not just be you know, the sponsorship specialists that they are now, but really make them cross-functional consultants in this space. So I want them to be able to go into meetings with clients, with rights holders, and, and really arm themselves with a lot more you know, information, a lot more tools, a lot more capabilities for them to be able to, I guess, not only expand themselves as, as individuals, but also enhance those discussions with clients and with rights holders. So I don't want some... Um, 
you know, I don't want my guys just to sort of be one dimensional, if that makes sense. I want them to really sort of, you know, and, and there's a really huge appetite for my team to, um, to, you know, to do that, you know, learning and development is, is huge within our organization, both from prism and, you know, and, and group M and WPP, but at the same time, um, we've got a really ambitious team and what we've learned across the, the past 12 months is you can't sort of be too one dimensional. So I guess they're the three key themes I, I really want to focus on. And, um, look, there's probably five others that, you know, we could talk about, but that's certainly, um, you know, the top three for me. Shannon, great chat. If people want to connect with you, find out more about Prism and the work that you do and continue the conversation, what can they do? Where can they go? If they want to connect with me on, on LinkedIn, I'm pretty active on there. So shoot me a DM, give me a follow. If you want to connect, um, as I said, I, I pretty much you know, we'll get back to everyone as quickly as humanly possible. Otherwise, you can check out our website, which is prismteam.com. You know, you can, you can engage with a lot of the work we do there, a lot of our brands. Shannon Quinn, Managing Director at Prism, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us inside Prism's work and how you see the sponsorship industry at the moment. Daniel, thanks for having me. It's been great to chat. Of course, we are all still working with the backdrop of uncertainty because we still don't know one year on when things will return to some real semblance of normal. Yes, things are slowly moving towards normal, but I know we are all still really vigilant about how quickly things can change and how flexible we need to be in this industry. So thanks again to Shannon for joining us and sharing Prism's journey over the past year and what they're focusing on at the moment. I found lots of great advice and perspectives in that chat and I trust you did as well, listeners. You can connect with Shannon on LinkedIn. Just search for Shannon, that's S-H-A-N-N-A-N, Quinn, Q-U-I-N-N, or visit prismteam.com to see some of their amazing client work. Or simply head to coresoftware.com, click on the resources link in the menu and then on podcast and you'll find links to Shannon's LinkedIn profile and the Prism website in the show notes for this episode. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And if you want to connect with Core Software's commercial director, APAC, Daniel Collier-Hill, you can catch him on daniel.collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R, at coresoftware.com, or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Listeners, that's a wrap for episode 94. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.